Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife, everybody. Uh, we're very pleased to have Dr. Doug Smink here. Doug is the program director of the General Surgery Residency at Brigham and Williams Hospital in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. He's also the Associate Chair of Education in the Department of Surgery and Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School in Gastrointestinal and General Surgery. Specializes in minimally invasive surgery. He's very involved with the Strata Center for Medical Simulation, being the Associate Medical Director there. And uh, Doug, welcome to BTK. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. So again, we for all our listeners, they know we'd like to start out. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? You know, where'd you train? Where'd you grow up? How did it come to the point where you are at Harvard? Sure. So uh, actually, I grew up uh, just outside of Philadelphia. Um, so I'm an Eagles fan, which is not so great around New England um, these days, having just won the Super Bowl. But it's our first one ever. So we're we're pretty excited as. Uh, Philadelphia fans, but I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Actually, my father's a general surgeon. He's retired now. I went to college up in Massachusetts. I went to Amherst College, and then um, I was uh, I was actually big in ice hockey growing up, and even in college. And then um, went off to medical school. I went back home to Penn, uh, which was a fantastic experience for me and a great place to go to medical school. Um, I have a lot in common with my dad, even though I I think for a while I tried to make sure I wasn't uh, being a surgeon just because my father's a surgeon, but I just turned out that that's really what I love to do. I love general surgery. I love GI physiology when I was a first-year medical student and um, just sort of fell in love with general surgery. And then uh, I, when I was going around interviewing, it seemed like everybody talked about what the surgeons did in Boston, which was just sort of intriguing to me to figure out what they were doing there. And I had uh, done a year of research with a surgeon at Penn who um, who was a Brigham surgery residency graduate. And he always talked really fondly of it. His name is Michael Golden. He's a vascular surgeon in Philadelphia. And uh, and so I came up and looked at the Brigham for, uh, for my residency interviews and just really loved the place. My wife is from near Massachusetts, so uh, or from uh, southeastern Massachusetts, so near Boston. And it seemed like a great place to come to train. And uh, you could say I never left, although I did go away for a year for fellowship at Dartmouth in minimally invasive surgery, and then I came back on staff at the Brigham, and I've been there now more than ten years. So, what uh, there at Brigham? What is your what's kind of the uh, a typical week for, look like for you? What's your um, your practice look like? How many days in the OR? How many days in clinic? How much time is in research devoted to the residency? That type of thing. Yeah, you know, um, being a program director now takes up a fair amount of time, and uh, and then. Now I've got this additional job as associate chair uh, of education in the department. Um, so I probably spend about half my life as administrative. Uh, that other half does also include some research. Um, and so I have I have one full OR day block time uh, for a full day a week, which I, I fill up and then do some other operating, maybe another half day a week sometimes. I have a full day of clinic uh, a week. And then um, the other days are taken up with uh, residency and department education-focused activities. Um, there's lots of, lots of things we need to do to keep the residency running and lots of meetings 
uh, around the hospital and with the residents, um, trying to work with the other program directors and uh, clerkship directors for the students within the department. You mentioned in the intro that I'm very involved in simulation, which I still am, although I actually don't do the administrative part of our simulation center anymore, which also was a big uh, amount of time and commitment. Uh, I had done that for about nine years, and when I became the associate chair of education, I stopped doing the, the simulation. But um, and then I spend, you know, some time doing research, and my research is really around surgical education. It does involve simulation quite frequently, and we do a lot of work in in training uh, surgeons and surgical teams about uh, team skills or what we call non technical skills, um, which has really become a big focus of mine academically. Actually, on that point, we'd like to dive into this first segment called the dissection of the day, where we like to ask you about one of the key things that you specialize in. And we love this aspect of, you know, what does it take, non-technically speaking, to be an excellent surgeon? So the the teamwork, the communication, the leadership. Can you tell us more about uh, what fascinated you about this niche and what you're doing within it and what you found so far? You know, when I first got out into practice and I had graduated from residency and fellowship, you know, it's it's a little bit anxiety provoking when you first start and particularly when you first start taking call and things like that. And I remember vividly thinking, I wasn't really worried if I could cut and sew and tie as well as my senior faculty that I respected so much. Not that I necessarily felt like I could, but I wasn't worried that that was the most important thing. It was really the thinking part of being a surgeon, how you make decisions, how you interact with your environment, both your OR environment, the operative field, but also around you in the operating room. You know, the best surgeons to me were the ones who um, pretty much never got in trouble, or if they got in trouble, they already had plan B in their mind and they just quickly moved to plan B. And if plan B didn't work, they quickly moved to plan C. And I was just enamored with those people. And I, I I I thought of this concept of the master surgeon, um, which I think if you ask anybody who's in training or is in practice, they they could name five people who are master surgeons. And they're not always the technically best surgeons. And I remember a few who I thought were technically just okay, but their their patients always did well. And it wasn't just, I mean, part of it is making good decisions before you get to the operating room, but I think a large part of it is how you act uh, in the operating room. And I didn't really know the terms for that when I first started to think about it and was really interested in it from a research standpoint. But I was also trying to build my career and my practice and do some simulation. And and so I didn't really dive into it. And I, I was really fortunate to have a, a colleague that I work with named Stephen Yule, who's a PhD psychologist that came to the Brigham, I would say about six years ago, five or six years ago. And he He's from Scotland, and he had studied. He's not a surgeon, but he had studied surgeons during when he was um, writing his PhD. And so uh, he really coined a lot of the terms that we use for non-technical skills. And uh, when he and I met and started to talk about it, it just just took off for me. And it was perfect time. I was we were in the simulation center. He and I both worked there. Um, we already had a program where we were, we were training surgical teams in uh, crises and trying to teach them uh, team dynamics. And then Steve really put, I think we all know about, but I hadn't used those terms before. So, and I'll just tell you what they are. So I was always enamored with decision-making, which is one of the, one of the concepts. Another one is called situation awareness. And that's sort of that awareness of what's going on around you. 
And then um, the other two are more social skills of teamwork and communication and then leadership. And to somebody who had played team sports their whole life, and I think was drawn to the OR because of that team dynamic, uh, this really resonated with me. And so we've really taken off with our trainings that we run, um, both locally at, at the Brigham, where we've trained uh, over 75 teams, OR teams, um, in our simulation center in these skills. We run a, a course at the American College of Surgeons annual meeting. Um, we've run some local courses at Harvard where we've had people come in from, from outside the institution and really all over the world. Uh, I've gotten to travel to some great places to, to teach non-technical skills. Um, and so it's been, uh, it's been really a fascinating area of research for me. And it's just, if you want my opinion and, and, and I think a lot of people echo this once you talk to them. That's what really sets apart the great surgeons from the from the good surgeons is their their non technical skills, and I think it's particularly around their decision making and their situational awareness. That's awesome. So I'd like to dive into this a little bit further, particularly in terms of how you build this into a training program and how you establish this culture. Um, so let's compare this to like your hockey team, for example. Your hockey team has practices together; they're able to build chemistry together; they work together very often. But oftentimes in a surgery residency, you have residents, scrub techs, attendings that are working with different people at different settings. You don't always get to work with the same team. So how do you build the same degree of teamwork, the same degree of these non-technical skills? Do you establish it simply by establishing the culture? Or is there anything bigger we can do to make sure this happens? Well, so it's interesting. As, as much as my focus is on uh, residency, and we do teach these skills to the residents, um, more of the training that we've done has been at the faculty level for these skills. Um, and I, I'm not entirely proud of that because I want to also train it to the, to the residents. And we do do some. The reason is that our, um, we've been supported with grant funding by our malpractice insurer um, to do these trainings. And they are uh, of the attending surgeons. And so the incentive they've created is for us to train the attendings. Um, it turns out we've been able to take some of those skills or some of those training sessions and uh, also adapt them to residency. So now we do some some team training with the surgery and anesthesia residents in our hospital. Um, but we do uh, we do still do it with with the residents. And I think that the challenge of what you're saying is, and it's true whether it's with residents and faculty and and scrub techs and anesthesiologists, you almost never work with the same team anymore. And to me, um, as much as we'd love to fight that battle and convince hospitals that we should all have the same team every day we work together, from what I understand, I don't run a hospital from what I understand, that's not the most efficient way to run a hospital or an operating room because it's hard, you know, your staffing needs to be dynamic. To me now, the goal, if we can't change who who we work with on a regular basis, we need to train everybody with the same skills so that when they come together, even if they've never worked together, um, they still understand the skills of teamwork and communication. In our training, we talk a lot about speaking up um, and being assertive in the operating room so that any member of the team feels comfortable if they see something unsafe that they can speak up about it. And, um, and I do think ultimately it becomes a change in the culture. Um, I'll just give you a, a small example um, from from the training that we do in our, in our simulation sessions, um, I've gotten very interested in creating an environment where everybody on the team feels comfortable speaking up, even the medical student or 
somebody who feels like they're a little lower on the on the hierarchy. And so in my time out before every case, I always say, the last thing I say is if anybody sees anything unsafe during this procedure, please speak up. And the, the, I think the neatest thing about the culture is that now I usually have my, my resident lead the timeout anyway. I just add that to the end. But now my residents oftentimes will just do the timeout and then they'll say that at the end. And uh, I think that's culture change. And I think that's really important. And so it's got to be uh, these non-technical skills, you can, you can learn them. They're not only innate and um, we need to train in it. Can you give us an idea of how, um, you know, what one of these uh, simulation sessions looks like? Um, I mean, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you build, you know, a, a scenario that focuses on teamwork, communication, leadership, um, and teaches those to residents, maybe for people out there who want to incorporate something like this into their residency program? For sure. So our simulation center has a mock operating room, um, and it looks just like a real operating room. We have um, we have multiple different mannequins that we can use to um, that are the patient. And for instance, we've created a, a scenario with a um, we created a tumor model that's really pretty pretty rudimentary. When we first built it, um, we borrowed this from some colleagues in Boston who had developed it. But when we first built it, it was just a bowl of Jello with a plum in the middle of it, and there was some IV tubing running through it. And we were able to uh, put some pressure bags connected to the IV tubing and make make the fluid red and and we would just put a couple of tubes in the bottom that had a hole in them so they could never they could never stop the bleeding and uh when we wanted to we would just let the bleeding happen and you know you can control the these mannequins are amazing now you can control the uh, physiology remotely so we would have them operating tell them they're taking out this tumor and then we would just make it bleed and make the patient get tachycardic and hypotensive and um Everybody in the room, we'd have anesthesiologists and surgeons and nurses, and they wouldn't know exactly what was going to happen. And we would just make that happen to them. And then we'd videotape it. And we would be in another room through some one-way glass watching. Um, and, uh, and then we just see how they react. And they have to call for blood and transfuse blood. And if they need to, they give pressers. And the surgeons need to hold pressure and, and try to... Um, you know, tamping out the bleeding while the anesthesiologist catches up. And, um, and those sessions, we actually, you would think the learning would be in the actual scenario, but in reality, the, the groups are pretty comfortable in that setting. You know, we, they, I'm sure the same at your hospitals, they, you know, they operate on some bloody tumors sometimes and the patients lose 500 cc's of blood and they get a little tachycardic and they transfuse them and the patient gets better. And, um, so we would have these scenarios that run for about 15 or 20 minutes and then we stop it. Do you have like some form of, uh, feedback forms or like, is there a standardized way you give feedback or like show improvement with these and the, the, as for residents specifically? So, um, we have, we have standard forms that we follow in these scenarios that we then make sure that we touch on certain topics like the ones that I talked about. There are assessment tools, um, and feedback tools for non-technical skills. So, the assessment tool that Stephen Yule developed is called Knots, which is non-technical skills for surgeons. And there's it's an assessment tool, and uh, each of those four main areas, uh, you can assess somebody on a scale of one to four, and you give them feedback. Um, and we're actually in the process of modifying the assessment tool a little bit um, right now as part of our research. 
But yeah, you can give people direct feedback and then you can reassess them at a later date and see if they've improved. Oh, great. Well, the next topic that we wanted to uh, speak with you, especially in our dissection, uh, is the workup and uh, the, everything surrounding periesophageal hernia, something we haven't really talked much about on, on Behind the Knife. So if a patient, you know, to start off, how do you usually, um, how do these patients usually present to you in your clinical setting? Uh, how do you do your preoperative workup? And then it, further on, could you just maybe describe your surgical approach? Sure. I'd be glad to. So, um, you know, these te- patients tend to usually, um, when they come symptomatically, many of them are in their early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And it's usually a pretty insidious onset. So I, I would imagine that most of these patients have had their hernias for 10 years or more. And they slowly grow over time. And, um, and the symptoms are usually subtle initially. Um, they have, uh, a lot of the patients will describe having had reflux when they were younger in their forties and fifties. Um, and yet not so bad that they ever had anything done about it. And then they start to get some dysphagia. Um, a lot of times they will complain of just a bloating sensation in their upper abdomen or even in their chest. Um, a lot of belching. Uh, they get early satiety, although, of course, the patient would never tell you they have early satiety. But if you ask them how they eat, uh, they say, oh, I eat like a bird. You know, I used to eat a lot, and now I can only eat part of a meal. I have to get up and walk around and burp, and then I can sit back down and eat some more. Um, and uh, and then often gastroenterologists did an upper endoscopy on them. A lot of times they have a chest x-ray for another reason, and somebody says, oh, wow, you have a huge hiatal hernia. And um, or I oftentimes will see patients who nobody's done any imaging, but it just sounds like a hiatal hernia to me. And I look back and five years earlier, they had a chest x-ray that somebody mentioned they have a large hiatal hernia, but nobody did anything about. Um, I still think there's a lot of fear in the, in the non-surgical community about fixing these hernias because they tended to be old patients and they were fixed either through an upper midline incision or even a thoracotomy. And you can imagine the the recovery for those types of patients is is pretty slow. Um, laparoscopic paraesophageal hernia repairs are a fantastic procedure. They're really well tolerated. Um, and so I find more and more patients are coming um, are coming to to surgical attention. Now, are there patients that are there patients that you would say um, leave it alone? I mean, if they're yeah. If they're really old and really a poor surgical candidate, um, what kind of guides that decision? The thought used to be these patients would um, have a gastric fobulus and they could die from it. But just sort of like incarcerated inguinal hernias, we now know it's pretty rare that that happens. And so um, if, they're, if they're not particularly symptomatic, we can watch it. Um, but uh, even older patients, I find, do, uh, do really well with surgery. Now, there are some who would tell you, um, that you should just do an endoscopy and put a peg in the patient and that will tether the stomach down. Um, if you've ever done one of these procedures, you can peg the greater curvature, but the fundus of the stomach would still go right back up into the chest and I would worry they'd still be symptomatic. Um, I just had a 91-year-old patient who came into the ER uh, last weekend with some uh, gastric outlet obstruction and uh, we put an NG tube in her and decompressed her stomach. And uh, then we did a workup and we got an upper large paraesophageal hernia. And then um, we fixed it laparoscopically and she left the hospital in two days. Um, it's, it's incredibly well tolerated in those patients. 
you asked earlier about the workup. Um, so for me, upper endoscopy, you've got to make sure that there's no Barrett's esophagus, no other explanation for their dysphagia like a tumor. And then really a barium swallow is the best test as far as I'm concerned. Um, it confirms the hernia. Um, it gives you a sense of how big it is and what the length of the esophagus is. And then, um, and then you can go ahead and fix it. Uh, esophageal manometry is not very helpful, uh, usually because with the big stomach distended in the, in the chest, it's hard, to, it's hard for the uh, technician to find the lower esophageal sphincter appropriately. Um, and a pH test isn't that useful because the problem is not, um, it's not acid coming up. It's just that this big distended stomach is in their chest. Okay, now it's time to go to the operating room. Can you just talk to a little bit about your surgical approach and some of the key principles to repairing these? Sure. So um, I have a standard way I put my ports in. Um, I won't go through that specifically, but I, I put in six ports in the upper abdomen. And uh, one of them is to hold the left lateral segment of the liver anteriorly and then with a liver retractor. And then you can really see the hiatus well. Um, sure. the, uh, then one is a camera. And then the operating surgeon, for me, stands between the legs. I put the patient in a split leg position. And then the assistant, which is often me, has two hands uh, off to the patient's left. Um, I, some people only put one, uh, one trocar on the patient's left and only have one hand for the assistant. I just like having two hands in there. It makes, gives me a little bit more ability to help in, uh, during the case. But um, then you got to mobilize the stomach. And you know one of the hardest things when you're doing either a gastric sleeve or a Nissen fund application is that the short gastrics can, can actually be really short. It can be a centimeter or less. Um, with one of these big pyroesophageal herniators, hernias, um, one of the nice things is the short gastrics are incredibly long because the fundus is pulled way up into the chest. And the short gastrics sometimes are six inches long. So the space between the stomach and the spleen is not hard to, to create. Um, and you take all of those down and then you mobilize the lesser curve. Um, and then really the key is, is to remember you're dissecting out the cruse on both sides. If you think of the esophagus, you, you end up being too close to it. But if you focus on the cruise, you separate uh, or you, circumferentially, you free up the cruise all the way around, and that leaves a hernia sac up in the mediastinum. And then um, the, the other key is you got to pull that hernia sac out of the mediastinum, and you basically uh, excise the sac. And in doing that, um, all the attachments of the stomach um, that are into the mediastinum free up, and the stomach... Uh, is now down in the abdomen. Um, I've never done an esophageal lengthening procedure like a collis gastroplasty. Um, I find that as long as you do your dissection uh, high enough into the mediastinum, um, you can always get enough length to get your esophagus um, down into the abdomen. Okay, so what do you now that you've gotten um, everything mobilized and down in? What's what's the next step? Where do you go from there? Sure. So, um, and I should say the way you do that is you really got to, there's, there are lots of attachments, um, lateral, anterior, posterior to the esophagus that you have to free up. But once you do that up into the mediastinum, your, your GE junction should be off tension and in the abdomen. Um, and then the next step is to close the hiatus. Uh, as a fellow, um, I was, we always close the hiatus typically posterior to the esophagus. I usually put a bougie down. Uh, through the esophagus and into the stomach, just so that you don't narrow the uh, GE junction too much. But um, 
just simple stitches posterior to the esophagus, um, bringing the cruise together. What size bougie are you using? Uh, so I, I usually use a 56 French bougie. Um, the patient I told you about that I did this week, um, was a pretty small, uh, small lady. So we used a 52 French bougie. Um, but, uh, 56 French bougie, and we would put stitches posterior to bring the left and the right cruise together. We do those. I, I use, um, I just do what I was taught as a fellow where I do pledgeted sutures and I don't use the endo stitch. I like to use just a, um, freehand suturing laparoscopically I do this slip knot that brings the two edges together and you'll put multiple stitches. I think the last one I did, I put five stitches, um, five separate interrupted stitches to bring the diaphragm together. Um, and then the interesting thing is, uh, what do you do about a fund application? In a patient who is in their 60s or 70s, I usually do do a fund application. And I like to do a toupee, um, which is a you know a posterior 270-degree wrap. Um, I like that because it's a little less likely to give somebody dysphagia. And in an older patient who's had a hernia for a long time, they might have some dysmotility in their esophagus. Um, the little uh, lady that I did last week, though, um, I actually wanted to get her in and out of the operating room as quickly as possible. And the last thing I wanted her to have was dysphagia. So actually, I did the, the hernia repair, and I did not do a fund application. We just left her stomach uh, in the normal uh, position now in the abdomen. I think the important thing to know, I'll just say, the important thing is the real problem is that the stomach is in the chest and there's a big uh, hole in the diaphragm. Um, so if you fix the hole in the diaphragm and you pull the stomach down, um, it's okay not to do a wrap in certain patients and they'll typically do fine. Sometimes they have a little bit of heartburn and as you all know, PPIs are really good medication for that. So you can leave them on that if you need to. Yeah. I was going to ask you if there's anything, um, you know, in, in maybe these older, you know, the more frail patients, the ones you, you kind of want to get in and get out, just deal with the problem. Um, is, is there any, is there any, are there any lesser procedures from doing a full, you know, mobilization of the sac? I mean, you hear about people bringing it down and, and doing a pexy or, um, or, or a lesser procedure. Is there anything that you would advocate? So I, I've never done that. I just don't think that's um, a great idea. The reason being, if you, if you leave the sac in the, in the mediastinum, um, the, the stomach will go right back up there. And if you've ever seen one of these cases, I, we just did, we actually videotaped it, uh, the one we did this past week because I was showing my residents. But you go in and the first thing you can do is pull the stomach down into the abdomen. And then if you let go, it goes right back into the mediastinum. So I think personally that if even if you pexied the, even to the umbilicus, the fundus is still quite mobile. The stomach's a big organ and that fundus will go right back into the mediastinum. And I would worry that the same thing could happen to them. So yes, there are there are some people who describe putting even two pegs uh, in to try to hold the stomach down, um, and I, I know they describe good success. But I find the morbidity of the procedure to do a hiatal hernia repair is not that bad, um, and uh, and I think the long term benefit is so much better. Uh, so I, I'm an advocate for for fixing the hernia. So is there ever a time when you use mesh? Um, and if so, what type of mesh do you use and how do you secure it? Yep. So, you know, interestingly, when I was a fellow, um, we never used mesh and we just did these pledgeted sutures. And then soon after my fellowship, there was a paper that came out that showed um, that uh, 
they had two year data with patients that they had actually randomized to mesh or no mesh, and they showed that the um, recurrence rate of the hernias was lower in the mesh group. Not surprisingly, so a lot of us switched to using mesh. And actually, when I say mesh, it, it's a biologic um, that they used. Um, it's surgesis, which is I think a, a pig small bowel submucosa. Uh, and there's a U-shaped one that's really designed for the hiatus. Um, so you would still stitch posteriorly, and then you would, on top of it, put this this uh, this biologic mesh. It turns out then they followed their patients another three or four years, and they found that the hiatal hernia recurrence rate was the same, and dysphagia was actually a little bit higher in the mesh group at six years. And so I stopped using mesh again. So the only time I the diaphragm together posteriorly um, sometimes it's it's on such tension and it's so thin and friable that it starts to tear. And uh, in that instance, that's the only time that I put in a I put in a mesh. What uh, so I know you mentioned uh, you know getting that core together using pledged. What suture are you using? Um, are oh, I have a couple follow up questions, but first off, what suture is your your go to for that? So my go to is a zero ethabon suture. And I get it on a ski needle. I don't know if you've ever used a ski needle, but it, it literally looks like a ski or a hockey stick. Um, and uh, I, it's just sort of the one I'm, I learned on and that I'm most comfortable using. Uh, so I use a zero ethabond and a ski needle. You're using pledges. So I've seen that people, um, you know, I don't know if you are, are now using V-Lock uh, to, to bring the career together. Have you ever done that? Or is that, is that a suture you've ever used? I've never used it. Um, I have seen VLOC used in other, uh, in other locations. I don't, I don't personally use it. Um, I could see it potentially being, being good as a way to, uh, the key is that the, particularly in these older patients, um, the diaphragm is thinned out quite a bit and you can tear through it with your suture. And that's why we use the pledgets. Um, and that's why I like the, the free needle because then I can, I, the slip knot I do slowly brings the two together. Um, and I think you probably can do a similar thing with the V-lock. Um, so I guess I should look into that, but I like my way. I'm used to it. And what are some uh, technical details of doing that, uh, the toupee wrap? Well, um, personally, I, I find it really fun. If This is, I will say, the parasophageal with a toupee is my, f- my favorite procedure that I do. Um, the anatomy is fantastic. Um, you're right by the vena cava and the aorta, the crus and the esophagus and the stomach. Um, and you get to do a lot of suturing. So, um, you know, after a hiatal hernia repair where just to close the hiatus, you might place three or four or five sutures. Then the toupee, you got to get it, um, you got to bring it around behind us and make sure there's no twist. So people talk about doing the shine maneuver um, to make sure it's not twisted. And then uh, the nice thing from a from a suturing standpoint, you have to put six sutures in a toupee instead of three for a Nissen. So you bring it around mm-hmm. and I usually sew the, the side that's now on the patient's right first. And I put three stitches there. Um, and then you bring the fundus uh, on the patient's left up against the esophagus and put three more stitches there. Um, and the, the other key is just to make sure, you know, it's really important that you're wrapping around the distal esophagus and not around the stomach, for instance. Um, and there are some tricks to make sure you're really right at the right at the angle of hiss when you pull the when you pull the stomach posteriorly, and you can pull on it. And you can see that it's tugging on the angle of hiss. That's when you know you're in the right spot. 
Okay, now it's time for our tips and tricks segment where we ask our um, experts to kind of get us some information how to get us out of those sticky situations. And so we thought with you, with uh, our discussion about parasophageal hernias, what do you do when you get bleeding up into the chest? What's your approach? How do you deal with this? And can you walk us through some stepwise uh, things and tips and tricks to be able to deal with this situation? So... um the bleeding in the chest is almost always a small um, a small vessel uh, that's coming off, connecting to the esophagus, for instance, or uh, or just a small thing in the mediastinum. And honestly, the first thing I do is I go work somewhere else um, because almost always there it's a little uh, bridging vein or something like that. And if you leave it alone, it will stop. And uh, what I think you get yourself more in trouble with is if you go digging around in there and trying to find it. Um, the other thing you can do is just hold some pressure. So if you can get a sense of where it is, you can. I usually use hunter graspers. They're pretty blunt, so you can use that to push against it. I don't really like putting a, a gauze into the into the mediastinum uh, or even in the abdomen at all. But you could if you really needed to uh, put a put a gauze pad in and just hold some pressure on it. But in reality, I just find they stop. Um, the the place you get yourself in trouble is if you muck around too much with it. The other place you can get bleeding, um, as I said, with the short gastrics, they tend to be pretty long. Um, and usually for this procedure, the spleen is not an issue. Um, for instance, the one I did the other day, we actually never saw the spleen, um, which is a good thing as far as I'm concerned in that procedure. But sometimes you get it just from the, um, the vessels along the greater curvature or up at the top, the, the short gastrics at the top, and they are bleeding from the stomach side. Uh, again, you, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to cauterize right on the stomach. So you could use a clip or what I would often do is just put in a figure of eight stitch right there to, to, to control it. But thankfully the mediastinum, I find those just stop. Now, how about if you're, you're, you're doing your mediastinal dissection and you've, you find, you get into the, the pleura, have you ever been in a situation where, um, you know, the patient becomes symptomatic from this, you know, capnothorax and is there any, what, what are some tips and tricks intraoperatively that you can do? So, uh, yep, certainly have done that. And that can be a challenge. Um, you can often see the, the edge of the pleura and, uh, we've all done it and gotten into the chest. I would say more often the left than the right, but I've gotten into both sides. Um, I think the first thing, usually as the surgeon, you notice it before they do. Oftentimes you'll, you'll see the hole you made. Um, but then as the pneumoperitoneum goes into the chest, the diaphragm on that side starts to billow into the abdomen. Um, I, I think the first thing that's helpful is just to just warn the anesthesiologist that you just did it. Um, the other thing is just to remind people that, um, there's no, you, you haven't injured the lung. All you did was made a hole in the mediastinum. And um, now you've got a pressure that's the same in the chest as in the abdomen. And it makes it a little bit harder for them to inflate that lung, but they can still do it. Um, you know, you've now created a pressure, usually 15 millimeters of mercury pressure. And they often will give a higher pressure to for, with each breath. So it's not that they can inflate the lung. It's just a little bit harder. Um, you can lower your pressure that you're insufflating at. So that helps them. Um, you can, uh, have them just, um, you know, the, the main thing for them is if they can't ventilate well, the CO2 will go up, the PCO2 will go up, but I just have them increase their, um, their, the rate of their ventilator. 
and that's usually effective. Um, so they can go down on their volume and increase their rate. Um, almost never do you have to put in a chest tube. Uh, I find usually you just have to work a little bit quicker um, to to get done. And then it depends a little bit. Uh, I have a trick where you can put a red rubber catheter into the into the chest. Um, so as you're closing the the mediastinum uh, of the you know closing the diaphragm, before you put your last stitch in, you put a uh, a red rubber catheter that goes into the plural plural space, and then um, you can evacuate that at the end. You you put a little column of water in it or saline, and you bring it out through one of your ports, and you have the anesthesiologist give some big breaths, and it expands the lung and it pushes the pushes the gas right out your um, your red rubber. And the only reason you put saline in is so you can see the bubbles and you know when it's stopped bubbling. Um, the other thing to remember that absorbs that pretty quickly, um, you have them give big breaths that tries to reinflate the lung. And then um, usually within a day, uh, it's been reabsorbed. As I said, there's no hole in the lung, so there's no ongoing leak of, of air into the, into the chest. I find people get more excited about it than they really need to. And actually, I sort of discourage a chest X-ray in the in the PACU because then people get even more uh, more concerned about it. That was going to be my next question: is if you get if you routinely get a chest X-ray in the PACU, or if you say, "Don't worry about it." Yeah, I don't. As long as they're oxygenating fine, I wouldn't worry about it. We talked briefly about you mentioned that you've never had to do you know call gastroplasty, but what if you're in the situation where after you do your mobilization, you're, you're just having trouble you know getting the GE junction down below the diaphragm. Um, you know, maybe they have a foreshortened, you know, a shortened esophagus and you're just having trouble getting that length. What, what do you do in those situations? What are some tips and tricks? Um, I just, honestly, I just dissect more into the mediastinum and I think it will free it up. The other thing to remember is that, um, when you've done your dissection, but you haven't closed the, the diaphragm yet, um, sometimes it looks like the GE junction is sort of right at the, at the diaphragm. But when you close it, just mm-hmm. because of the orientation, the sort of the curvature of the diaphragm, as you close it posteriorly, it actually sort of it doesn't it doesn't literally retract up into the uh, towards the head, but it, it as it closes, it it takes that curve and actually tends to expose more of your distal esophagus. So I find sometimes you think um, you don't have enough length, and it's sort of like the GE junction is right at the diaphragm. But as you close it, um, usually you gain a couple of centimeters of uh, intra-abdominal esophagus that way. So it's sort of reassuring. I, I, I remember as a resident, a fellow, not quite believing that, but seeing enough as a trainee and then in practice. Um, now I'm pretty comfortable knowing that that you've got enough length. I mean, in theory, you could to do a collis, you um, you staple some of the fundus off essentially, and that gives you a longer esophagus. Um, the concern to me with that is that if you then do a wrap, you could have some gastric mucosa above the wrap because you've you've made a neoesophagus. But um, it would be a bummer to do a wrap for acid above the acid secreting mucosa above the wrap. Um, if it looks like it's a little bit tight or it's under a little bit of tension, uh, are those patients? Do you ever do a gastropexy or put a G tube in those situations based on how it looks? Uh, sometimes I would do a gastropexy, and the the way I do that personally is to just take a bite of the fundus that's right next to the left cruce and and suture it right there. So there's a way you can just take a single stitch through the through the fundus and then to get a bite of the cruce and tie it. 
Um, and that would be the only thing I would consider doing if I, uh, I felt like, um, I was concerned that it could, that it could go back into the chest, particularly for a paraesophageal, you know, there's, there's radiographic, uh, hernia recurrence, and then there's symptomatic hernia recurrence. And, um, the radiographic is probably 20%. Um, but we don't do barium swallows in all these patients because a lot of them, even if it does recur, um, it's so much better than what they had before when half their stomach was in their chest that they're not particularly symptomatic from it. All right. That's been fantastic. Uh, Dr. Smink, we're going to move on to the final five where we ask you a couple short questions for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more personally. Uh, so to lead off, uh, what's on your iPod and, or do you listen to music in the operating room? So, you know what? I don't listen to music in the operating room. And um, I, I guess I'm a little bit boring that way. Um, I, I actually, I used to do it. And um, then I got a little self-conscious that people thought my music might, like, I felt like I was being judged by my music. So uh, now I, I and I, I didn't really want to worry about that. So now I just tell them if they want to put on music, go right ahead. And I, I let the circulator do it if they want to. What were you listening um, to? So, I, I don't, so, yeah. so we can no, judge you by your music. you know if i was to if i was to play music it would be like um probably uh dave matthews and u2 and um those are like ones from my era number two what do you have any hobbies or talents or uh other interests outside of the operating room uh probably my biggest interest um is ice hockey um which i played my whole life uh i actually uh, played after college, uh, for a year professionally in Europe. Um, I didn't make a lot of money, unfortunately, but it was a lot of fun. And then I decided to go to medical school. Um, and now, uh, I'd like to play more hockey, but I do spend a lot of time in the hockey rink because I have four kids and they all play ice hockey. And so, um, I help coach a lot of their teams. Um, part of the reason we had our, uh, interview with this hour is because I had a, had to be at a couple hockey games earlier today. Um, so the other times you offered me didn't work so well. So I don't play a lot of hockey now. I, uh, but I, I'm on the ice a lot cause I, I help my kids teams like three nights a week and on weekends. Uh, is there a favorite trip or vacation that you've taken recently? Um, you know, we, um, we're pretty, um, simple as a family. We, we go to the same place every summer, um, that we've gone to, uh, with my wife's family for like 20 years. So we go to Nantucket, which is a island off of Cape Cod. And it's, um, it's one of our favorite places on, on earth. And we'll go there for, um, we'll go there for a couple weeks. Uh, we pack up the whole family in the suburban and we head down there. And then, uh, most days we just go to the beach. We fill up the car with all sorts of beach toys and we, you can drive right onto the certain beaches there. And we just open the back and throw everything out and sit on the beach and swim and um, stand up paddle and things like that. All right. Number four. So if you uh, had never gone to medical school and you're not in medicine at all, what would you be doing? Mm, Interesting question. You know, I think I would have been, uh, I think I would have been an economist. I think I, I was an economics major actually in college and I loved economics. And I think the other thing I would have done was uh, gotten a, probably tried to get a PhD in economics and be a college economics professor. 
And then number five, if you had to go back to your first day on uh, internship, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to yourself? Uh, I still remember the first, I, I still remember a couple things of my first day. I, I guess most people remember that, but I, I think, um, I think the best advice I would give myself is that you're actually a doctor now. So act like it, uh, as an intern, um, my chief resident, um, you know, I presented the first patient. I told the vitals and the I's and O's and they had an NG tube in and I had put out like, you know, 50 CCs in the last 24 hours. And uh, I, I presented everything perfectly clearly. And then he said, well, what do you want to do? And uh, I had no idea. I hadn't thought about what I wanted to do. I just thought I had to collect the data and tell him that the, you know, the abdomen was soft and that the NG had put out 50 cc's. But I didn't actually realize I was supposed to think about what I was supposed to do. Um, and so uh, that would be my best advice is you're a doctor. So um, it's not just about collecting data anymore, but it's about putting that together and making a decision. That's great. That's a, that's a good answer. That's, that's one we haven't gotten that's before. Yeah, I like that. Well, uh, Dr. Smeek, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. We covered a lot of ground and, uh, thank you so much for your time and thanks, uh, for being on behind the knife. Hey, thanks for having me. You guys are doing great work. Keep it up. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Mm -hmm. Until next time, dominate the day.